Welcome to a podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. Our academy is a national organization committed to excellence in orthopedic manual physical therapy practice, education, and research. And we're here to explore a wide range of topics with you through interviews with content experts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists podcast. I'm Kevin McPherson and today we will be continuing our series of interviews from presenters at the 2018 AOMPT conference in Reno, Nevada. Specifically today we will be interviewing Dr. Evan Peterson regarding clinical reasoning and his presentation at the conference. Now, before we get into that, here's a little bit of background on Evan. He is a hybrid practitioner in that prior to becoming a physical therapist, he became an athletic trainer and received his degree through Brigham Young University. After that, he uh, moved into physical therapy and received his master's degree through Baylor University, and he has seemed to have a pretty strong tie to that university because he eventually got his uh, fellowship through there, as well as his doctorate of science through Baylor. And uh, across the, the end of his military career, he was in charge of their doctorate program. Since that time, he has become a faculty member at the University of the Incarnate Word, where he continues to really strive to improve clinical reasoning across the students that roll through his program. So without further ado, Evan, how are you doing today? Excellent. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate your, the opportunity to do this podcast. And we appreciate you being able to come on to uh, the podcast to really elaborate on your talk because I was able to sit in this talk and uh, I found it uh, two things. One, very necessary because we all know that clinical reasoning is a very difficult skill to uh, get students to evolve. And then two, uh, it was validating because I, I tend to do a lot of the stuff that you're doing, but maybe not in as organized a process. So um, to, to begin with, let's give the listener a little bit of background on your talk. And for, uh, for those listening, the title of the talk was Putting Your Clinical Reasoning in Order, Effective Teaching and Learning Strategies for Physical Therapy Students and Educators. So, Evan, tell us about it a little bit. Absolutely. Um, well, this, you know, clinical reasoning is a very uh, a topic that we're very passionate about. I've, I've done this at the fellowship level uh, uh, training and also now at the entry level now for several years. And it just seems to be one of those things that is, is such an essential skill for our students and, and clinicians to, to master. And it probably is one of the more difficult ones because it's not a, a as tangible a skill as, as something like a manual muscle test or or doing an, a certain intervention. And so I've been really intrigued over the last, you know, really decade of understanding clinical reasoning and applying it uh, to different situations. The way this talk came about, we've actually, uh, we actually started one in uh, 2017 uh, with Gail Jensen and Dr. Matthew Walk, which I presented with it at uh, this AM conference, um, about why wait for fellowship training to learn how to reason. This was at CSM in 2017. And that was the kind of the springboard as we continued to study this and put some of these principles into practice, which resulted in this one that we just uh, did at, at AOMPT uh, in, in November. 
Um, it really came out from, from our observation of our students really having struggles with, with the clinical reasoning process, like you mentioned earlier, uh, it just seems to be a little bit more sporadic for the, for the novice learner, uh, not, as, not as fluid, uh, difficult to put things into practice, different difficulty to take pieces of information that they have and put them in, an, in a way that they can then process that and then make uh, sound clinical decisions. So that was the, one of the purposes of the title of our, of our presentation, Putting Your Clinical Reasoning in Order. We really stress in our program a more systematic approach to clinical reasoning. And again, we've developed this tool uh, called the CRAFT tool um, that has facilitated uh, their, their students' reasoning. And, and more than that, given the educators the opportunity to see that reasoning on paper and be able to identify where some of the gaps uh, of, of their clinical reasoning are happening. Fantastic. Uh, now, when we look at the talk you gave, you listed out five specific errors in clinical reasoning. And I'll just list those off uh, from the slides you have. Uh, first is ineffective gathering of, or sorry, gathering and verification of pertinent information to, to guide that reasoning. Two was the failure to filter and group an array of signs and symptoms into meaningful, manageable chunks of information. Three was knowledge deficit. Four was letting uh, personal and professional biases cloud uh, our reasoning processes. And then the final one was an over-reliance on heuristics or those cognitive strategies and mental shortcuts. So do you mind giving us a little uh, little bit of a run through on how this form, the craft form, uh, helps out with these different reasoning errors. Absolutely. Um, you know, and thanks for mentioning those. those. That was a key piece of our, of our presentation, which came from a pretty extensive look at the literature and not only in our profession in physical therapy, but also across the healthcare professions and where where we're making these, these, uh, these errors. And they're, again, not con they're not just uh, within physical therapy, but but in a lot of other healthcare professions, and so as we looked at these errors, we we were trying to come up with strategies to basically overcome them. So if if this this is a an error of ineffective gathering and verification of that information, how do we teach our students how to gather that information effectively, and how do they verify that? So one of the ways one of the ways we do this in in our curriculum is really that this systematic approach, the, the way we teach them how to take the information uh, in a specific order um, that doesn't, you know, yes, it's a little bit scripted in that regard, but, but the patient's still in charge. It's just being guided by the physical therapist in a, in a more appropriate way. As they do this, the information that they get, they can actually verify. Uh, we teach them strategies like, you know, proper open-ended questions, following up with more closed questions or closed and biased questions which might help them verify the information that they need. But more appropriately, when, when we do this in order, what, what we see our students doing is being able to process this information. And then it actually leads to the, to the second error. Even though you can gather it effectively, if you can't process that, and in the literature it's called chunking, you're putting pieces of, of information into, into pertinent, you know, uh, manageable chunks of information that you can do something with. And so the way we teach this, uh, it helps the student actually do this process as they're taking the interview. Uh, once they do that, so, so that's some of the strategies that we, that we talked about uh, in, in our presentation that really is related to the craft form, but, but not exactly uh, that piece of it. 
We also talk about effective strategies like uh, a body chart uh, and the importance of a symptom map in, in really understanding the patient's pain, you know, where it is and where it's not. Um, and then being able to take the rest of that information, you know, the eggs and ease is the past, present history, a 24-hour behavior. And then, then we teach the students really how to do an effective medical screening to make sure that they fully understand the patient by the end of the subjective interview. So that, those are strategies that we taught uh, in the, in the AMP uh, conference presentation that really kind of attack those two, two first errors. Uh, the third error is about knowledge deficits. Now this this we related to you know this is one of the reasons why we go to school right if if uh, if you don't know about certain diagnoses if you've never heard about certain interventions the likelihood you're going to employ those is is very low and so uh, we just made a, a a plug for you know education not only entry level but then that li- being that lifelong learner continuing in and going to residency and fellowship training because this is where we continue to gather more and more information that will hone our our skills as a physical therapist the uh, the fourth error the letting the professional or or uh, personal biases cloud our reasoning um, this is something that I think all of us just need to realize that we all have, have biases and as we first admit that to ourselves we can then take that into process and say you know even though I might love manual physical therapy um, this patient that's sitting right in front of me may not really need it or it might not be effective for him or her and so if I've already biased myself by overthinking everybody needs manual physical therapy and exercise then I might miss an opportunity to to evaluate or treat a patient in a way that they really need it Um, so it's just a constant check for us and then the last thing is the over-reliance on the heuristics, which uh, you mentioned very well, is a, is a cognitive strategy. It's a shortcut that we make. Um, a simple example is some of the things that we hear routinely in physical therapy. For example, if a patient uh, uh, lands, uh, you know, plants the leg and, and, and turns the knee and all of a sudden hears the pop, the first thing that usually comes into our mind as physical therapists is probably sustain some sort of ligament injury, possibly ACL. And although that's not wrong, um, that if we don't ask the further question of where did you feel the pop or, or what did you experience after it, were you able to bear weight on it? Some of those additional follow-on questions, you can make the clinical reasoning error of just assuming that it is a ligament injury when you haven't really explored that, well, what if that pop happened at the hip or the ankle? Then how does your reasoning change with that? So that's just a simple example of, of one heuristic. Again, there, there's many others in our, in our profession. Transitioning then to the, the, the craft tool, what that really does is take that information that, that we've gained from the, from the subjective examination and basically puts it in, onto paper so that, that the, the student can really see their reasoning process. And so the script or the, the craft tool is taken into different parts where they actually start with part of the body chart and develop some of their hypotheses based on where the pain is and where the pain is not. This helps them then uh, develop some of the uh, initial hypotheses and we have them actually rank their most likely, less likely and, um, and more remote hypotheses considering not only orthopedic, but also non-musculoskeletal uh, pathologies as well. Um, another tool that we utilize along with the craft is uh, what's called the SINS approach, and that's, that's been uh, talked about and, and discussed quite, quite extensively. Uh, the, the challenge is there's not a lot of literature published about it, but we really feel this is an area of research we're going into. 
um, the SINS tool, that, which stands for um, uh, Severity, Irritability, Nature, Stage, and Stability. The craft form actually incorporates that process of thinking and reasoning so that the, the patient can really, I'm sorry, the therapist can really understand the patient um, and then can tailor the physical exam and the intervention process to the patient's SINS. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit of a snapshot about that. And then the rest of the craft form basically takes through different parts or different types of reasoning that the student goes through. Uh, and again, at the end of the process, this gives the not only the, the student the opportunity to see their own reasoning, but then again, as a, as a clinician or as, a, um, as an educator, we get to see what the, what the student is thinking and, and why. So there's a lot to, to really unpack with everything that you just said. If we start off uh, a little bit further back into your reasoning errors, one thing that I've seen in the research was uh, really a lot of the efforts to point out bias to students or to uh, predominantly medical practitioners, since that there's a fair amount of this research more in that realm than ours specifically. They found that teaching somebody about bias and the different types of bias, such as availability, such as anchor, these don't really impact that person when they're in clinical practice. They can help them identify after the fact, but it wasn't so much in. Now, what I've seen is that what comes to bear is exposure, experience to whatever that diagnosis is or whatever that uh, specific presentation is. And I, I, I'm curious as to a little bit more depth or if we could get a little bit more depth on how you help your students cross that knowledge deficit bridge. Uh, and it doesn't need to be elaborate. You can just give me kind of a, a 30,000 foot view. Sure. No, that's an excellent question. You're absolutely right. Um, and that's one of the things I think the power of this, this tool does is you can actually see the students reasoning on paper. Uh, all, you know, they, they may be able to tell you this and in a, in a conversation that might be come up, but if they don't actually reflect on it, that metacognition uh, skill of reflecting on how you thought, what you thought, and then putting your thinking on paper, sometimes it just doesn't become really visible uh, and tangible for the student. Uh, and then as the, for, the, uh, for the clinician or the, the uh, CI, uh, the educator, it gives them an opportunity to actually evaluate that thinking a little bit more in a structured way and then have a meeting with the student to say, wow, here's, here's where I think you may have made this error or here's where I think you, your, some of your biases may come out. And let me give you an example, you know, like the first two parts of the craft, the first part's about really identifying potential structures of sources of pain, et cetera. And then, then that takes on to that initial hypothesis. What we see very commonly in our students is uh, just a very myopic or narrow-sighted view of where the symptoms could be coming from. You know, right under the symptoms, they might give you diagnoses that are very, very uh, related to each other, but they can't take that next step out. Well, besides that, what else could this be? And many students struggle with that with that process. Well, the craft form actually helps the, the student see this and say, wow, all the maybe six hypotheses that I came up with were all pretty much focused on just maybe, for example, if it's a patient with lumbar spine pain, this, everything is, is just localized in the lumbar spine. So although that's not wrong, you've really failed to understand that, that other things could be happening 
that could cause that pain in the lumbar spine? Have you considered how the thoracic spine may be contributing to this? Have you considered that this pain is coming from the hip and it's referring to, to that, to the area or the SI joint or something like that to help the student really expand their vision, expand their reasoning and how they're going to systematically rule in or rule out competing hypotheses. So to, to kind of um, ask a, a little bit more clarification about that response, I, I'm curious to how much, uh, how much you ask the students to ante up for their hypotheses? Are they trying to list their hypotheses in order of probability as well as just putting them on the form? Uh, how are you using the one, two, three for your most likely, least likely, and very remote hypotheses? That's an excellent question. And there's actually two sections on the craft that actually does this for the student. They make an initial hypothesis after the body chart, which is that first thing after you've get, gotten to know the patient, to establish the patient profile. We, we, we teach them how to take an effective uh, symptom map. And then really right after that, they're, they're encouraged to, okay, so what are your initial hypotheses? right after that that body chart. What are you thinking right now? And then as they progress through the exam, they have the opportunity at the end of the subjective exam to then refine that hypothesis to say, well, I thought it was this, but in, in doing the medical screening and in, in taking the eggs and ease factors and in, in doing this 24-hour behavior, the additional gathering of that information, I find that this hypothesis is not well supported whereas this other one is actually you know, more supported. So I'm going to make a clinical decision then to treat this or to evaluate this first rather than this first one that I was thought. So that also helps the clinician and, and also the educator see that reasoning, how it, how it changes. Because most novice and, and beginner therapists, um, they, 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 the first thing that they think about, they typically just stick with and because that's what maybe they, they know very well. And then they'll just just go with that and at the expense of everything else. They don't really systematically rule in and rule out competing hypotheses. And this is what the craft form actually does is, is help the student realize that, oh, wow, I am thinking pretty, pretty myopically. I'm not thinking more broad and I'm not asking questions to rule these other things out. And so I'm ended up with what I thought it was in the beginning. And now that's more like confirmation bias. And so this, this, the form does help check some of your biases um, as you go through the process. Now, speaking of bias, you um, have mentioned two things that I want to clarify to the listener. One is that uh, error in reasoning number four, where you're looking to limit some of the personal and professional bias. But you also made mention of subjective questioning in where you might want to use a question that is biased. Do you mind just clarifying that up for the listener? Absolutely. So this is another strategy we really teach our students to uh, to combat some of these clinical reasoning errors. Because again, if your questioning skills are poor, you're going to to receive information that's very poor. Uh, and so we really we have some some interesting strategies that we utilize in the classroom to help our students. Uh, uh, utilize their questioning skills of really opening up each section of the interview with more of an open-ended question and then really forcing them to listen to the patient's response and then asking the follow-on question, which may be an additional open-ended or maybe more closed-ended or closed and biased question to clarify information that the, that the, stu- or that the uh, patient may have said. So basically just verifying that information you know, that the patient said. So what you're saying is this, or do I understand you to mean this? 
And that, that way you're building that rapport with the patient and really understanding where they're coming from. And, and so at the end of the subjective exam, you really truly understand you know, what the patient, who the patient is, what their problem is, and, and how to maybe effectively address it. Um, so those, those questioning skills absolutely are, are crucial. Uh, they go right along with, with the tool, but it's, it's with, if, and, and they'll, they'll see this sometimes when they take their, their exam and then they go put it on this clinical reasoning tool, they'll see their huge gaps because they'll realize, oh my goodness, I haven't even asked about that or I didn't even consider uh, competing hypotheses. So this tool will help them realize some of their gaps in the, in the clinical reasoning process. So towards the end of your response there, Evan, you mentioned kind of that contextual presentation that you're, the, the student is trying to get from the, the patient in an appropriate and clear way. And that's one of the things that uh, comes from a reference. I believe your reference was Edwards uh, 2004, looking at clinical reasoning and physical therapy. And they talked about two different reasoning processes or uh, things to consider for a patient. One was that empirical component of it. The other was more of a narrative uh, aspect to it. When I look at the craft form, you're describing some of that more global, uh, who is the person in front of me, as opposed to just what is this presentation. In the, the craft form, I see that that tends to be pushed back a little bit uh, into, I believe it's section five. That's correct. Uh, which is after, after you know, that initial intake, after considering how much you want to push the patient during evaluation. So uh, are we waiting to that time point or are you having them consider the, those aspects a little sooner? That's a great. That's a great question. In fact, uh, a couple of other uh, clinicians and and educators brought that to our attention uh, during the the AMP conference, which I thought is great, and it's an it's a absolute uh, uh, good um, critique of the form uh, because it looks like from the form standpoint that this is really more of an afterthought. It's in the, it's in the later sections of the craft, um, and it's really not intended to be that way because really this is a, um, a way for the student to actually put their thinking in an organized fashion so that they can reason wh where they're making the errors uh, in which part of the reasoning. And you said it well, the contextual, contextual factors is, it a, is an absolute crucial part of understanding the patient, it just happens to be in a section that's that's a little bit uh, further down in the in the in the tool. But that doesn't necessarily make it less important. It's just it's just where it's located in the tool, where where the student actually learns and how to get those contextual factors is through the whole entire patient client management process. In other words, they're already starting to understand the patient the way we we teach them how to take the history. They're starting out with the patient profile. So before they even ask about you know where your pain is, how did you hurt yourself, etc., um, the the student is uh, it learns how to take those contextual factors such as you know who you are, what your what your likes and dislikes, uh, what is your work environment like, what's your home environment. They do that patient profile section first really and then move into the body chart, then move into the some of the eggs and ease. And then throughout that process, you know, they end up the uh, subjective exam with, you know, what are your goals? Uh, how do you, how do you learn best? Uh, how can I, what's, you know, the things that I can help you most with as a physical therapist. So the, that process is really fluid throughout the patient client management encounter. And then they take all of that information that they've, that they've gathered. Um, and then they put that in sections of the craft. So 
again, the sections of the craft are not necessarily in order of importance. It's just more um, putting them in a in a in a way to chunk the information to say, okay, wow, you really didn't consider. You know, like for example, if they did a really good job on the first four sections of the craft, and then you get to the fifth section, and you see that you know they didn't uh, they didn't consider any of the contextual factors that the patient how this how this disease or how this problem might have affected them they'll be able to see that easily because none of the boxes will be checked on for example societal factors or health and wellness or or occupational things it's like you didn't even consider how this problem is affecting this person's ability to to live because he's lost his job he's not been he's been out of work for two weeks and you didn't even address that uh, as as the physical therapist so you even though you got the right diagnosis and you're probably right on on board with that you really haven't considered how this is affecting the person uh, per se so yeah that that's a valid uh, critique of the of the form it's it's not meant to be hierarchical it's just more of putting it into the category so it could be easily read and interpreted Thank you for, for really clarifying the way you use this form, because I think, you know, were I to just pull this off of a journal website or whatnot, uh, I, I would have a, a little bit of disconnect with that. So knowing how you use that form uh, is v- very beneficial to both me and I'm sure many of the listeners. Now, uh, last kind of uh, question, if not maybe one clarifying biased question <laughs> to follow up with um, so obviously the craft looks like it's an expansion of another form that that scripts form. Uh, and in your presentation, you spoke about the differences in how you use it with students, where that script form is more uh, you're using it with that patient right in front of you uh, or you've stepped out and very quickly or filling it out while that person is still available. Whereas with this form, it can be used in a different way in the curriculum. Do you mind speaking just a little bit how you use it across your uh, curriculum? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And you're absolutely right. The The script tool um, that we published uh, in January of 2017 that came out in the Physical Therapy Journal was a publication that when I was in the fellowship director at the uh, Army Baylor University uh, Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapy Fellowship Program, uh, some of the fellows and faculty members um, got this tool together that we had been using for for several years and decided to publish it as a, this is how we use it. This is our clinical reasoning process. This is really facilitating our fellows in that process. Um, so that's where that publication came from. Uh, SCRIPT, again, is an acronym for, you know, the, the SCRIPT stands for Systematic Clinical Reasoning and Physical Therapy. So that tool really is, is more manual therapy focused um, at, at really the post-professional level in PT. Um, we utilize it in the fellowship program in one-on-one mentorship ses- sessions um, and, and in the clinical examination process. Because of that, it's really less detailed. It's only two pages long. Um, it really facilitates that little bit more advanced learner because it already supposes that learner to know some of these things about contextual factors or or some of these prognoses and other types of things that, that maybe a more uh, experienced physical therapist who's already licensed and maybe been through a residency program may already understand, but still needs some guidance on on, on clinical reasoning and, and, and that effectiveness process of, of understanding the patient. Uh, 
So when we, uh, and a little bit of background about this, so after I uh, retired from the military, again, that we had just been in the process of publishing that tool. Um, I retired from the military and was hired on here at the University Incarnate Word. And I was hired on to teach the patient client management thread um, of our program and got to meet Dr. Matt Bach, who teaches the clinical reasoning thread of our program. So at the same time, Matt has a very similar background than I do. Uh, he graduated from the Kaiser Fellowship, Manual, Ther- uh, Manual Physical Therapy Fellowship in California, and was working actually on uh, similar types of forms. Um, he had not seen the script before, but took some of the tools that he used in his fellowship program and was trying to adapt it to the entry-level learner. And so as we started talking, because we teach in the same year group, I'm like, oh, Matt, look, look at this product. This, this is what we have used in the, in the fellowship program. And, and he's like, yes, this is very similar to what I used in the fellowship program. We both loved it because it really facilitated our learning when we were you know, fellows in those programs. And so our, it, that began that process of really saying, well, how can we adapt this to the more entry level? And so that, 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 that was a process over about a year and a half that we worked together to modify the script, to expand it. Um, and now it's really focused on more general orthopedic reasoning at the entry level physical therapist or student level. Um, it really is, it, it, it's not effective in utilizing the clinical sex, uh, setting like in, the, in an ongoing uh, clinical encounter just because of the length of it. So it's really to be used more, it could be used in the classroom setting or a group tutorial setting. Um, we actually use it not only for that purpose, but we also utilize it as an assessment in our practical examination. At the end of our semesters, we call it the OSCE or Objective Structured Clinical Exam. And so we actually use that, that tool to, to both teach and assess um, our students' uh, clinical reasoning abilities. Um, it is absolutely an extension of the script. Uh, an adapt- adaptation is probably a better word for that. Um, it is more detailed. Um, there's a lot more guidance uh, in the form than the script because of we're dealing with novice learners, uh, people who are really still trying to wrap their brains about you know, not only a physical therapy process, but also the clinical reasoning in those processes. Thank you for the the clarification. I think that's, again, going to be beneficial for those individuals who are looking to use this form or that uh, scripts form uh, and process in their training uh, or mentorship. So um, having uh, discussed a lot of that, what I'd like to get an idea of is just your future projects. What do you have going on down the pipeline of which I think I heard earlier at least one of those might be some research revolving around SINs? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, uh, let me back up just a little bit upon that. You know, we're, you know this, even though this tool is, is something that we feel is effective, you know, just using one program is, is you know, each, each program I'm sure has their own way of doing things and, and that's fine. But it's interesting, uh, Dr. Gail Jensen and her colleagues at Creighton have really identified done a lot of good research in clinical reasoning and have identified that there's, even though we know a lot about clinical reasoning, um, there's still a lack of consistency in, in the PT education on really how it's defined, how it's taught, how it's assessed. And so we're really, we're looking for best practices. And again, we're, I'm not saying that this is, this is the, the end all be all yet, but we're looking for ways in which, how do I assess a, a patient's clinical reasoning ability? Now we have this form, we have this tool called the CRAFT, which is, again, stands for the Clinical Reasoning Assessment for, Physical, for Thinking Effectively. This form really has not been, there's no reliability to it. There's no, it's not been validated. So again, to utilize it in a more uh, 
global way, we would have to do those types of, of studies first. And so we were very pleased with some of the educators that came uh, to us after the conference um, and, and inquired about this. Uh, some have actually asked to utilize it in our program, uh, in their programs, because uh, one of the things we were worried about was, you know, we have a, in a at UIW, University Incarnate Word, we have a problem-based learning curriculum. And so that, that's pretty unique uh, in comparison to the majority of education formats that are out there. And we were concerned that maybe this is a really effective for our program because of our format. We have an entire thread that's all about clinical reasoning. So we were excited to see other educators who were coming from other more traditional programs wanting to utilize this. So we have shared the tool with them and they're in the process of, of, of using it and then giving us feedback about it. And then our next step really is to, to do some of these research on establishing the reliability and validity of the tool and how it's really affecting uh, a student's ability to, to, uh, to learn. I got to take a second because that, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a, a fascinating statement you just said, because when I think about kind of core issues with especially outpatient orthopedic physical therapy is uh, just the, the idea of not having uh, a true um, oh, gold standard for a diagnostic label. Um, it, it just, it, I, I think I think it's going to lead to some very, very good discussion on usage from a diagnostic standpoint. I think it's obvious when you look at both forms, uh, the benefits that will be received from an assessment as well as from a, uh, an actual treatment prescription program. But I just, as you're talking, I just think about just some of the, the difficulties, however, some of the very robust discussions that will likely come from uh, looking at trying to enhance this process, uh, I just I felt the need to really uh, point that out and say that. No, absolutely, I, I agree with you one hundred percent, Kevin. This is a this is an area where I think we as educators and and advanced clinicians can really need to get together more often and discuss these things and see what works and see what doesn't work. Um, I need to give some kudos to to Gail Jensen and her colleagues at, at Creighton. Um, they actually held a conference uh, um, in, um, I believe it was in 2017, uh, about just a clinical reasoning conference per se that they held there at Creighton. And they brought a lot of these educators from different universities to really share their ideas um, and, and balance, uh, you know, what we know versus what we don't know, what's effective versus what's not effective. And it was very enlightening to be able to have these types of conversations that you're talking about with, you know, experienced clinicians, other researchers, et cetera, to really explore this. It's, it's, a, it's a need I think we all see. The challenge is this is a skill that, that, is, that is not very concrete. Uh, and people might have their likes and dislikes and their, their way to, to do an evaluation and, and that type of thing. But in the end, I think we're all focused on, uh, you know, getting the patient better, understanding them and, and, return, and restoring them to, to normal mobility and strength. Um, but that process is, is not always uh, uh, perfect. Uh, that, that is a challenging process because we're dealing with such a huge variety of, of patients and conditions. Uh, a thought as you were talking too is, 
you know, I, do, I wanted to mention that, that another critique of the, of the form is that it really is more orthopedic centric. Um, it has not really been uh, some of the uh, people who came up to us afterwards and said, well, this is, this is great what you're doing, but I don't see its utilization in like neurological settings or, or with patient pediatric or others. And we fully admit that, that this is, this is much more of an orthopedic biased type of form uh, and is utilized in that setting. Uh, we would encourage, we were starting to some of those dialogues with the, the neuro, uh, uh, physical therapists who are, who are uh, experts in neurology and pediatrics to help us develop something that's similar in their domains um, so that they can do this. We, we feel that the process is the same. Maybe the tool just needs to be uh, modified somewhat to, to focus on, on theirs as well. But um, absolutely agree with you, Kevin, that this is an area that we need to continue to, to do research in, uh, continue to explore, continue to collaborate um, so that we can find those best uh, uh, evidence-based practices and, and something that we're more unified on rather than being uh, so diverse in, in how we think and how we act. Great clarifications and great uh, expanding upon the subject matter there, Evan. So the last thing that I'd like to ask our uh, interviewees is, what advice would you give to a practitioner who may be considering a fellowship? That's a, that's a great question. Um, but first of all, I would encourage it. Um, I think that goes back to our, you know, one of the clinical reasoning errors is uh, the number third, the third one was knowledge deficits. Um, you're going to make errors if you really have the lack of information or lack of knowledge. And so being that lifelong learner of after PT school, you know, continuing to, uh, to attend conferences like the AMP conference or CSM or the next conference in, in physical therapy, th these are things that we need to be doing as a professional um, to, to advance our skills, to continue to keep up to date on the current knowledge. Um, those are wonderful as well, but sometimes in a weekend course or a week-long conference, you might get pieces and parts of information that you don't know how to employ very effectively in your clinic or, or in your you know, teaching style. Um, and so I think going to residency and fellowship level type of training uh, is, is a little bit more effective in that regard. So I would highly encourage all those who are considering advanced training to pursue that. There is evidence in the literature that shows that that is, that is really beneficial, not only in how effective you are as a clinician or a practitioner, makes you more marketable, things like that. Um, my only caveat, I think, to that is just make sure you do your research. Um, not all fellowships and residencies are made alike. Um, I'm not trying to say good or bad about each of them. I'm more concerned about the actual uh, learner um, to make sure that they're doing the research on on, you know, does this fit them? You know, you need to find the one that fits your budget, find the one that fits your time constraints, your family situation, your personal situation, that type of thing. Is this the right thing for you right now? Because um, as an educator now for the past, you know, several years, I've seen our students, you know, pursue this at some of them at the perfect time for them and others maybe that it's not the right time for them or they got into something that they really didn't research very well, didn't realize that the, uh, you know, they taught this way or they, I had to travel as much or whatever. So my, my counsel to anyone who is, is seeking advanced uh, education is just do your research, uh, ask a lot of questions to each of them, compare and contrast and choose the one that's really best fit for you as, as a learner. That's excellent advice, uh, Evan. And 
uh, one, just to finish up this conversation, I'm sure there's going to be individuals out there who might want to ask you a few more questions. What's the best way that they might be able to reach you? Absolutely. And they're more than welcome to be happy to answer any additional questions or follow on thing that they might have. Um, you can reach me by email. Um, my email address is E-P-E-T-E-R-S-E at U-I-W-T-X dot E-D-U. That's probably the best way to get a hold of me. You're welcome to also call me on my work phone here at uh, University Incarnate Word. And my phone number is 210-283-6916. And to Dr. Evan Peterson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your efforts in our profession. And thank you for a wonderful presentation at the 2018 AOPT conference. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate the opportunity. This has been a production of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists. You can learn more about the Academy by visiting our website at aaompt.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for our acronym, AAOMPT. 